0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Are You Envious Because I'm Generous? The Economy and Geography of God's Grace. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 21st, 2008. In the business world of startup companies, Employees who are hired first typically reap the greatest profits, often in the form of stock options that skyrocket in value when the company goes public. In other words, people hired last earn very little, whereas people hired first earn a lot. This business model spelled good news for Mark McDonald. Mark McDonald was hired as Microsoft's first salaried employee in 1976. He wore badge number 00001. He left the company in 1984 because he said Microsoft had gotten quote-unquote too big. At the time Microsoft employed 400 people. Today it employs 55,000 people in 85 countries. Still Mark McDonald is forever famous as Microsoft's so-called first employee. Such are the ways of the world, and more power to Mark and the fortunate few like him. But in the Gospel for this week from Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a story to remind us that the kingdom he inaugurated is very different than the business models of most startup companies. As he so often did, his punchline shocked his listeners with a radical reversal that subverted conventional wisdom. If we listen carefully today, it should shock us, too. In the parable of the workers in the vineyard, a foreman hired laborers early in the morning and then successively throughout the day at the 3rd, 6th, ninth, and 11th hours. A 12-hour day of manual labor with the burden of the work in the heat of the day is a long, long day. That evening, the foreman settled accounts, paying those who had worked a meager one hour the same as those who had worked 12 hours. Imagine if Microsoft hired you this afternoon as employee number 55,001 and then, after the interview, informed you that your salary would be the same as Mark McDonald's, or maybe even the same as Bill Gates's, the thir- the world's third richest person with a net worth of about $58 billion. You might be thrilled at this turn of events, but Mark McDonald wouldn't be. The shareholders wouldn't be happy either nor were the laborers who had worked 12 hours the parable that Jesus told says that quote they grumbled against the landowner Jesus responded that in God's upside-down kingdom the last will be first and the first will be last Matthew 20:16 since he had just made this exact point 2 chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 19:30 He seems to be reinforcing a point that's near and dear to his heart. His point is not one about profit margins or minimum wage laws, but rather about the lavish generosity of God's grace in contrast to the meritocracy that characterizes so many human relationships. He cut to the quick when he responded to the grumblers in chapter 20, verse 15, Are you envious because I am generous? The Jesus way, in other words, is a world of grace and not merit. Status reversal instead of status reverence. Undeserved generosity rather than pay for services rendered. The Old Testament reading for this week provides an apt illustration of Jesus' parable. When God had compassion on the pagan Ninevites, We read in Jonah chapter 4-2 that he complained bitterly. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God's prophetic call had come to Jonah, telling him to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance but he refused and fled 750 miles in the opposite direction. Nineveh was east of Palestine, whereas Tarshish was west, perhaps in southern Spain. It's easy to criticize another person's disobedience, even a flagrant disobedience like that of Jonah's, until we know or experience their own situation. Consider, for example, the enormity and difficulty of what God had asked Jonah to do. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, Israel's traditional enemy and eventual conqueror. With a population of 120,000, some classical accounts say that it was the largest city in the world in its day. The text tells us that its pagan sinfulness was legendary, And so was its cruelty. According to the French sociologist Jacques Ellul in his book, The Judgment of Jonah, it was the people which scorched its enemies alive to decorate its walls and pyramids with their skin. Yahweh had asked Jonah to go to this city and preach repentance. It was like perhaps asking a French person to go to Berlin to preach repentance in 1942 task felt impossible and so jonah fled jonah was not just fleeing an unpleasant calling we read in chapter 1 verse 3 that he was fleeing from the lord a fact which he freely admitted to the sailors on board the ship he hopped he then descended into a suicidal death wish the first of 3 such death wishes remarkably enough And here's a prophetic word of grace for us today. God didn't desert Jonah to his disobedience or give him up to his own poor choices. Instead, Jonah chapter 1 verse tells us, 1-7 tells us that the Lord provided. The provision was a fish that swallowed, saved, and then vomited Jonah back on shore. Sometimes God's gracious provision does not even wait for us to turn around. He even takes a suicidal death wish like Jonah's and turns it into an occasion of grace and provision. And so Jonah was saved. God's prophetic word came a second time to Jonah, and this time he obeyed. He traveled to Nineveh and preached to Israel's pagan conquerors. It took three days, and then the unthinkable happened. The city famed for cruelty and wickedness believed the message and repented. The king proclaimed a national day of civic repentance. Nineveh, we read in the text, despite its wickedness, cruelty, and enemy status was, quote, a city important to God, chapter 3, verse 3, a city for which he had great compassion, 3, verse 10, and a city that attracted his tender concern, chapter 4, verse 11. Just as God did not desert Jonah to his own disobedience, he did not desert a pagan enemy like Nineveh. Jonah complained bitterly about God's lavish love toward a sworn enemy. His disobedience to God's initial call was one thing, perhaps understandable due to the magnitude and improbability of the task, but there's something dark in his second failure. Why do we sometimes prefer misfortune for others, divine judgment, rather than God's shalom for everyone? We know that in some sure and certain way, God loves all people equally. But the parable of the workers in the vineyard that that demotes the first to the last and elevates the last to the first, along with Jonah, who complained about God's tender love for Israel's bitter enemy Nineveh, they remind us that he somehow has a special love for the least, for those whom we normally exclude, reject, and even hate. The geography of divine grace that embraces Nineveh and the economy of his love that pays a full day's wages for one hour of work, confound our puny human metrics that complain about divine generosity. Instead, we should celebrate. And for further reflection, watch the Danish film from 1988 called Babette's Feast. The story is set in the late 19th century and takes place in a small fishing village on the dank and dreary Jutland coast of Denmark. In the film, a band of dour Christians learn the meaning of God's extravagant grace from a most unlikely source. And for books, see Brennan Manning, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Might we compare Baghdad to Nineveh, as in Jonah 3, verse 3, we read, Cities important to God. And finally, have you ever regretted God's favor to an undeserving person, like the workers hired first, or like Jonah complaining about Nineveh's repentance? Are you envious because I am generous? The Economy and Geography of God's Grace. For books this week, I review Jean-Dominique Balbi, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, New York Vintage Books, 1997, 131 pages. Jean-Dominique Balbi had it made, or so he thought, At age 43, he was the editor of L magazine, cynical and a stranger to failure. Then he had a massive stroke that left him in a coma for three weeks. When he awoke, he suffered from a rare neurological disorder called locked-in syndrome. He could hear a little and his brain worked fine, but otherwise he was totally paralyzed and couldn't speak he could only blink with his left eye. With his one good eye, Baubi dictated this remarkable memoir, letter by letter, to an amanuensis. A speech therapist devised a chart with the letters of the alphabet arranged by frequency of use. And as she spoke the letters, Baubi would blink for the letter he wanted. Though locked in the heavy diving bell of his useless body, His imagination soared as playfully as the butterflies that fluttered inside his head. Bobby's memoir consists of what he calls his bedridden travel notes. He lost 66 pounds in 20 weeks. When a fly landed on his nose, he wiggled his nose to no avail, only to conclude that, quote, Olympic wrestling is child's play compared to this, end quote. Taking a bath sometimes brought elation, and at other times, depression. Sundays, he said, were the worst, when hospital staff and visitors were at a minimum. Bobbi relates some of his dreams, memories like a trip to Lourdes, and the last time that he saw his father, and cherished visits from his daughter Celeste, age 8, and son Theophile, age 10. His description of their visit to the beach on Father's Day is wrenching, and I quote, Grief surges over me. There are no words to express it. My condition is monstrous, iniquitous, revolting, horrible. Suddenly I can take no more. Tears well, and my throat emits a hoarse rattle that startles Theophile. Don't be scared, little man. I love you. Bobby's public updates, and eventually this book, belied the rumors swirling around Paris that the famous editor was, as the rumors went, quote, only a vegetable, end quote. Mail poured into him, and he hoarded the letters like little treasures. In 2007, a film by the same title told his story and earned four Academy Award nominations. Bobby died in 1997, just days after the publication of this remarkable book. Jean-Dominique Bobby The Diving Bell in the Butterfly. For film this week, I review 21 from the year 2008. This film, as the saying goes, is inspired by a true story. That true story is told in the book Bringing Down the House, the inside story of six MIT students who took Vegas for millions from the year 2003. In that real-life story, the MIT blackjack team devised a complex scheme of card counting disguises, and hand signals to win $4 million in Vegas before the heavy hand of the casino security gave them the boot. This film follows that outline, but it's a pale imitation of a genuinely interesting tale of greed, intellect, and emotion. Kevin Spacey stars as the MIT professor Mickey Rosa, who bullies, badgers, and betrays his six students in Venial Vegas. The dialogue is horrible, and it points entirely predictable. There's no character development. The subplots about friendship and parents hold little interest. The plot does take some unexpected twists, but even this resolves in a cheesy ending. It's quite a feat to make a boring movie about the glitz and glamour of Las Vegas gambling. So I say, skip this film and read the book. And finally for this week, we've posted a favorite poem of mine by Henry Vaughn. Henry Vaughn lived from 1621 to 1695. He was a Welsh poet and physician. The title of the poem is called Revival. Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, Who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, He deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, Some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in expressed joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt, O here the lilies of his love appear. The Revival by Henry Vaughn Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 21st, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin